it's bright and early, but on whatever day it is, and I still don't know. <laughs> it's like March 432. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Good to have you with us. I try not to say this too much because it is such a cliche, but man, what a year this week has been. Hi, perhaps you recognize me. It's your favorite president. I just left Walter Reed Medical Center, and it's really something very special. The doctors, the nurses, the first responders, and I learned so much about coronavirus. We will not let anyone subvert our democracy. Senator, your party has spent the last three and a half years trying to overturn the results of the last election. Don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. There's no quit in America. We have never, ever, 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 ever quit. I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. This was a blessing in disguise. President Trump announced on Tuesday that he was calling off talks with the Democrats over a new stimulus plan, talks that had been underway for months. Trump appeared to backtrack, calling on Congress to approve some additional assistance for airlines and a small business aid program. We need you to stand up at any time in our history. We need you now. No, I'm not going to waste my time on a virtual debate. That's not what debating's all about. You sit behind a computer and do a debate. It's ridiculous. Come here tomorrow. We're going to be talking about the 25th Amendment. Breaking news out of Michigan as state and federal investigators say they've broken up this elaborate domestic terror plot designed to overthrow Michigan's government and kidnap or kill Governor Gretchen Whitmer. California is going to have to ration water. You know why? Because they send millions of gallons of water out to sea, out to the Pacific, because they want to take care of certain little tiny fish. With just over three weeks until Election Day and trailing in national polls by double digits, the president seems to understand the dire political situation he's in. Sidelined with COVID and unable to participate in his favorite political pastime this week, the big airplane hangar rally, the president has taken to Twitter, cable TV, and even homemade video to pitch voters on promises to deliver everything from a free coronavirus drug cocktail to stimulus checks. And of course, to lash out at his political enemies, including those in his own administration who he sees as insufficient in punishing his political opponents. Meanwhile, Trump's window for turning around his political fortune narrows every day. Already, more than six million voters have cast their ballots, according to the United States Election Project. To help us make sense of the latest twists and turns, I am joined by Laura Barone-Lopez, national political reporter at Politico, and Claire Malone, senior political writer at 538. I started out by asking Laura if she thinks Trump could deliver on any of this week's promises. In terms of stimulus and actually, you know, checks being sent out to Americans um, before Election Day, I'm skeptical that that there's much time for that to get done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because this week alone, Trump went from, you know, still being in negotiations with Pelosi and House Democrats to get a COVID stimulus relief bill to then tweeting out that earlier this week that negotiations were dead and that he was walking away and that they weren't going to happen. And in that tweet, 
also uh, pretty much setting it up so Democrats could blame him for those negotiations tanking. Then he starts saying, well, he want, can we do individual packages and trying to come back to the table? But we've still seen, you know, not much movement by the, by the end of the week uh, in terms of actually reaching agreements. And what's stunning about that, too, is, is that according to some recent polling, the $2 trillion package that Democrats were proposing is supported by a majority of Americans. It was frankly stunning that the president, you know, would tweet that out, not so much that the negotiations wouldn't work, but that he would tweet that out and essentially take blame for negotiations ending. And and whether or not the other things that he talked about this week, about about the amount of money that he spent on the military, uh, his attacks on Hillary Clinton, will that impact the election? I don't think so. Only because yeah. so far this has been a steady election where coronavirus has dominated uh, what voters are thinking about. Yeah, it's like he's going back to the 2016 playbook, trying to figure out anything that will work. You know, well, it worked in 2016, but this year, of course, there's no Hillary Clinton and there's coronavirus. Claire, there's something else that feels very much like 2016, which is a little less than a month before the election, polls showing Donald Trump down big, Republicans Mm -hmm. worried that the president's problems are going to bring the entire Republican Party down, right? It was Access Hollywood back then. And it was like, I'm sure you remember too, talking to Republicans who were who were thinking, oh, my God, we're going to lose the House, we're going to lose the Senate, this is going to be the biggest landslide in American history. And of course, we know what happened. So um, we're hearing those same things now from Republicans worried that it's all collapsing around them. I have two questions for you. One, the possibility of that is it more likely this year than it was in 2016? And two, what do you think Republicans could do to try to help themselves if the president is not helping them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should point out here that that Trump is is um, is losing to Biden now by an average of about 10 points nationally. And, and in big swing states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, he's he's down by an average of like eight, seven or eight points. So it's it's certainly a problem for Republicans. I think it is certainly a huge risk that the Republicans could lose both the White House and the Senate. Now, I say that, and I also say that it's three weeks till the election, that things can happen, right? The president has COVID. You know, there's lots of stuff going on. So I I, I hesitate to say, like, you know, this is all in the bag, because even though the, the polls are really good, and I think that, that those should also lead our analysis, there's lots of fluidity and things that can happen. But I do think that Republicans in um, some of these tough Senate races, do you have to make this choice about, okay, who do I really need to speak to? Donald Trump insists on speaking to his base, um, even when it is to his political detriment. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, white college educated suburban women were were swingier voters. Now they're pretty solidly democratic. Um, you know, maybe these some of these Senate Republicans should start thinking about, okay, these independent leaning, White men, right? They they kind of seem to be uh, losing the thread with us. What can I do to appeal to them? And probably it has a lot to do with um, it's it's a bit late at this point. Um, people have certainly tied themselves to Trump, and Trump's um, strategy hasn't gone particularly well. Um, I guess perhaps speaking frankly about the state of the pandemic, about the state of um, the public health response. But honestly, you know, in some of these cases, 
you know, the cake is already baked. And so I think a lot of Republicans are really, really struggling um, with these this last push to November. Right. I mean, we've seen in previous elections where the party that's losing or their presidential candidates losing, the down ballot candidates do a whole like, don't send a blank check, right? Um, yeah. Don't don't let the new president have a blank check with an all one party Washington. That seems harder to do at a time when Trump just dominates everything to say suddenly like, I'm going to distance myself from Trump and make this a race about don't let Biden come in and, and run the show. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're exactly right. People will say divided government, you know, is good for America. It's healthy. We need it. Um, I think that the, the, the thing that I think none of us maybe could have predicted four years ago is how um, closely Republicans would hold Trump, mm. how tightly they would hug him. Um, and, and again, in many cases, to the candidate's detriment. I mean, you look at someone like Martha McSally in Arizona, who, you know, at this point is on track to be kind of famous for losing elections um, in that state. And she she really leaned into Trumpian stuff, even though I don't think that's her natural um, political persuasion. But that was kind of like the conventional wisdom that she was given. And so it, it does make things very strange right now where there aren't a lot of, you know, it, you know, independent seeming Republicans or Republicans who you might say, oh, this is a guy in the kind of mold of a, of a John McCain or a Mitt Romney, who at this point seem more like anomalies in the party than anything else over the past, you know, four years. So, Laura, we've talked about some of the challenges for Republicans, but let's talk about the Democrats right now. And there still seems to be worries among some Democrats, some hand-wringing about the fact that, uh, especially with younger voters of color, there's not an enthusiasm for Joe Biden, that in states like Nevada, there's still a lack of turnout potentially among Latino voters. What are you hearing and seeing that um, suggests that, you know, Democrats really still have to be very wary about assuming that everything's good to go? Yeah, so a lot of focus has been devoted to Arizona because it is potentially, you know, this really new uh, battleground state. But but while that's been happening, Democrats have been warning, look, uh, we have to watch our back in Nevada because Hillary Clinton only lost, uh, she actually lost Arizona by by less than she won Nevada. So uh, Biden was there this week. Uh, Pence was there this week. And I was talking to Democrats this week as well, especially Latino Democrats about, are you still concerned? Because there's been this um, somewhat palpable concern over the last month about whether or not, um, you know, Nevada could become the, the Michigan uh, of 2020. And, and they're starting to feel a little bit better than they were a few weeks ago. Um, they're, they're putting more money into the state. Uh, Somos, which is a Latino run outside group, just dropped 1 million this week on Spanish language ad buys. Uh, and so, uh, they're very focused on trying to turn out Latinos, and, and Biden's numbers have been slightly ticking up among Latinos there. Um, you know, their, their marker, what they're watching as more polls come out, which again, the problem with Nevada is that there's um, less polling there. Right. But as more polls come out, you know, what they're watching is can Trump get over 30% of Latinos? And, and if he can't, then they're going to feel pretty good. If if he looks like he's nearing 30, going to get over 30, then that's a warning sign. 
um, for them. In terms of younger voters, what I would say is that, you know, there was a Harvard youth poll this past month that showed that Biden could potentially reach Obama 08 level numbers uh, of young voters this cycle. Uh, So despite that enthusiasm gap that very much exists, there are young voters that are saying they're still going to vote for him anyways. And he is in consistently across polls. When you look at the 18 to 29 year old bracket, which is Gen Z plus millennial, he's beating Trump there by double digits. Claire, I want to bring up one other story that, again, of all the stories that I I definitely did not predict of 2020, um, white supremacists trying uh, to kidnap the governor of Michigan was not definitely not on my list of things. Um, Obviously, the FBI thwarted this plan. But um, what do you think this uh, event sort of tells us about our politics going forward? I know a lot of people are very worried in the lead up to the election and even post-election about the potential for violence. Um, What do you think? The news yesterday that there was a credible kidnapping plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, um, who is a woman who who I feel like I should note here is a survivor of rape, um, which kind of makes this threat of violence all the more palpable, was pretty incredible to me, I have to say. And and I've sort of been jaded by a lot of the... Um, the pace of the news events over the past four years. I mean, Whitmer directly tied Trump's rhetoric um, to this plot. Obviously, Michigan was in the news in the beginning of the pandemic because or towards the beginning of the pandemic because of all these groups coming to protest the lockdown, you know, with with weapons out at the Capitol. You know, you're allowed to um, to carry in in Michigan. Um, I think it speaks to a lot of fears that people have about what happens after the vote comes in in November. Um, because we obviously have a very partisan, very divided country right now. I'm not I'm not breaking news to anyone on that point. But what I do think is really new, I mean, even in the polling questions that we're seeing, um, pollsters are now regularly asking people, do you think this will be a fair election? Are you worried about post-November? Those are not questions that pollsters used to ask, at least in America. And um, we have seen now in two debates, President Trump and then Vice President Pence not clearly answer or not answer questions about, will you accept the results of the election? Will you make sure that there's a peaceful transition of power in the case that you lose? Again, I'm pointing out here that that the president is down nationally by um, quite a few points and in swing states by quite a few points. So that's a worry. And we've seen time and again, Trump is not a person who who is prone to calming rhetoric. And, you know, there are there are some people, obviously not the majority of the president's supporters, but there are certainly some people in America who think that our divided politics means that it is a call to arms. I mean, I had, you know, uh, there was a there was a certain sort of flashback to Ruby Ridge and Oklahoma City mm-hmm. and, you know, Waco, those kind of 1990s white terrorist, um, you know, the Unabomber, th- that kind of um psychology kind of kind of rearing up again, which I found um, just an interesting historical comparison in addition to being extremely disturbing, having it happen to the executive of a state uh, three weeks before an election. So it's not good. 
Amy. Uh, that's what I'll say. <laughs> right. in, in conclusion, it is not good. Let's hope yes. that it works out well. Claire, Laura, we could go on and on and on. Unfortunately, we have to end our conversation here. But I want to thank you both so much for joining me and helping us walk through this crazy week. Yeah, thanks, thanks for you. having me. Laura Barone Lopez is a national political reporter at Politico, and Claire Malone is a senior politics writer at 538. We spoke on Friday morning. Part of this week's avalanche of news was the first and only vice presidential debate between Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence. On Wednesday evening, the two shared a stage in Utah with a pair of plexiglass barriers separating them. While there were a number of issues that landed both candidates in the hot seat, there was one question from moderator Susan Page that stood out to me. One of you will make history on January 20th. You will be the vice president to the oldest president the United States has ever had. Donald Trump will be 74 years old on Inauguration Day. Joe Biden will be 78 years old. That already has raised concerns among some voters, concerns that have been sharpened by President Trump's hospitalization in recent days. Now, this is an obvious and important question to ask a vice presidential candidate, given the advanced age of President Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and against the backdrop of a highly contagious pandemic. But both candidates dodged answering it directly. To give us a broader understanding of the role that Harris and Pence will play between now and Election Day, and what their debate performances indicated about the rest of the election cycle, I spoke with Maya King from Politico and Annie Carney from The New York Times. The campaign had kind of thought that if the president was quiet and recovering, Mike Pence could carry the news cycle uh, for him. But that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. You know, the coronavirus task force is the perfect example. This was kind of thrust on Mike Pence as a really difficult, thankless task to chair this thing at the begin- back in March and the vice president started doing these briefings. They were somewhat successful in getting a message out in the early days, and he got some good remar- uh, reviews for those. And the president saw that and stepped in and took it over himself and did not get good reviews. And his poll numbers dropped. And uh, the president's daily news conference on the coronavirus briefings were a disaster. Um, this often happens to Mike Pence. If something he's doing is working well, the president will overshadow it. But the other thing we saw last night from the vice president was that despite the calmer tone, the nodding, the, you know, public expression of empathy that Trump does not do, that Mike Pence is capable of doing, there is no daylight between them. I, the, one of the most shocking answers to me was when he was asked, what will your role be if there isn't a peaceful transition of power? He didn't answer. And then he brought up that the FBI spied on the Trump campaign in 2016, which is one of the president's favorite talking points and going into Obamagate, which is a conspiracy theory. And so it's a different tone, but this was all of Trump's talking points last night. Maya, I want to talk about how Senator Kamala Harris did and and what you saw the other night at, at that vice presidential debate. Here we have the first woman of color on a major party ticket. And we also, especially after watching 2016, we know there are different standards that men and women are held to, certainly different standards that women of color are are held to than white men. How do you think that played out in this debate? And what do you think this tells us about how the media and voters 
are going to react to a woman if the Biden-Harris ticket does succeed, a woman in that job of vice president. The playbook that the Trump campaign and the Trump ticket employs during debates of um, of interruption and of, of cutting off, you know, the people that they share the stage with was still very much in play last night. Vice President Pence cut off um, uh, Senator Harris on several occasions. And a number of the folks that I talked to after the debate were very quick to point that out. And I think getting to your second question about, you know, how voters and um, and other folks watching this might respond to that, you know, with a, a woman of color atop the ticket, I don't think these conversations are going anywhere. And if if we do see a, a Biden-Harris administration, this is likely something to come up more often, not just in conversations with Senator Harris, but, you know, members of her cabinet or of her, you know, the folks who are actually, you know, working with her and those members of organizations that have supported her from the beginning. All of them have said, you know, these conversations about women of color, um, you know, appearing aggressive um, or, you know, angry instead of direct or, you know, well-practiced are things that have always been always been issues. These are things that have always come up, but they've really been brought to the fore and really given women of color across the spectrum to, a chance to really voice those concerns and say, look, now you can see this at the very top. Um, I want to start with you, Annie, but go into a couple of these issues that were brought up at the debate that weren't really answered uh, by either candidate. And one of those, a question from the moderator, Susan Page, about whether the vice presidential candidates had had conversations with their bosses about, you know, health precautions and health plans, should something happen to them? Do you think that they missed an opportunity to perhaps help voters who are worried about, oh, my gosh, are we electing these super old people? What's going to happen about making them feel better about about that? For Kamala Harris, it's just this sense that she's an ambitious person and Mm. um, she, she, you know, actually just wants to be president and and thinks of it as a Biden Harris, uh, a Harris Biden ticket and makes, you know, and is running the show. It's it's like a Republican talking point that that he's old and out of it and she is really going to be controlling things. And so I think she's very eager not to play into that. And on the Pence side, I mean, there's such an audience of one factor in everything that goes on in Trump world. And the idea that the president is in his mid-70s but has the strength and stamina of a man half his age and will never be tired and never be uh, weak is like the whole thing. So um, for Pence to like challenge that in any way would be a no-go. That is so important that you you point out this this audience of one because the other issue that has been brought up is the fact that, again, when asked by the moderator to Mike Pence whether or not the Trump administration would accept defeat, right? These questions that keep swirling around Mm -hmm. about what's going to happen? Is Trump going to leave office if he loses? Will he contest this up until the last minute? That, again, here was an opportunity for Vice President Pence to sort of tamp this down. Oh, you guys are getting hysterical. We're never going to do that. It's okay. Of course, we would never Mm -hmm. uh, contest an election uh, that is rightly determined. Uh, Mm -hmm. He kind of went 
into talking points that you would hear from President Trump. I think he shocked a lot of people during impeachment when he um, was asked about Hunter Biden and he said, you know, his business dealings in Ukraine is something that should be looked into. He goes with the administration's most controversial talking points. This is not the first time he's done that. He just does it in a nicer tone after mm. thanking the moderator, after thanking, <laughs> after being polite. Maya, I want to bring up uh, or go back to something that, that Annie said about, you know, the territory being fraught for Kamala Harris to sort of talk about being on the ticket with somebody who's 77 years old, this idea that she's too ambitious, that she's just wait, biding her time until she gets to be president. And um, at the same time, she used this opportunity last night to try to introduce herself. And I, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that balancing act that she has, which is she is, and if she wins, would be the first woman of color to be sitting at the White House. And yet we hear very little from her or about her. The Biden campaign has been really strategic in, you know, the way that they've crafted the narrative around the Biden-Harris ticket. We've gotten a lot of information, of course, around Harris's identity, that she's very proud of both her Jamaican and Indian heritage, that she's a graduate of historically black college, that she's a member of a historically black sorority. And these are all things that play well, of course, with the base, um, the Democratic base and with black voters and shoring up black enthusiasm. Yet on the other side, of course, there's this critique that we really haven't seen much of her and that we haven't heard a lot from her outside of these sit down interviews. Um, and so the the debate really gave her an opportunity to, again, like, um, like you and like Annie said, to introduce herself um, to the electorate a bit more broadly. And I think, though, the reason um, why we haven't seen that much of her, of course, the Biden campaign maintains that they're taking every safety precaution um, for the virus. And I, I believe, you know, that they're they're likely, you know, understanding that that was probably a safe bet, especially now in comparison to the White House becoming in many ways a, a super spreader uh, spot, honestly. Maya. Annie, thank you both so much for taking the time and walking us through all this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Maya King is a politics reporter for Politico, and Annie Carney is a White House correspondent for The New York Times. Lindsey Graham, United States Senator from South Carolina, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, fierce defender of President Donald Trump, is fighting for his political career. Help me, they're killing me money-wise. Help me, you did last week, help me again. That's Lindsey Graham making a fundraising pitch on Fox News last month. Now, at this point in 2020, I certainly did not expect to be talking about the Senate race in South Carolina as a possible pickup for Democrats. But, well, here we are. Up is down, left is right, South Carolina's turning blue? Well, it's not that simple. Daniel Vinson is a professor of politics and international affairs at Furman University in South Carolina, and she describes what's happening there as a perfect storm. It is a confluence of several factors. Um, I think it starts with the fact that the Democrats uh, recruited Jamie Harrison to run, 
and they really cleared the field for him early on so that he avoided a primary. Um, he is the perfectly designed Democratic candidate for South Carolina. He's not too extreme. He grew up in the state. He has a very compelling personal story. Um, as an African-American man, he can speak very clearly to the issues uh, that are relevant to a lot of voters right now. Um, his background as the state party chair gave him a really strong working knowledge of all parts of the state. Uh, he was used to helping, you know, run the the Democratic Party's campaigns across the state. So he, he wasn't just um, familiar with one particular region of the state. And that's important in South Carolina because there mm. really is quite a bit of variance from uh, the northwest corner all the way down to the coast. I think the other things that have mattered, um, Lindsey Graham's high national profile and his decision um, over the last four years to embrace Trump completely after being very anti-Trump prior to the election in 2016, um, the the strong defense of Kavanaugh during those hearing those confirmation hearings uh, raised a lot of attention nationally to to Graham, but also generated a lot of backlash nationally against Graham. And that allowed Jamie Harrison to go well beyond what would have been his normal network for fundraising. And he found himself very early on flush with cash. And because he didn't have a primary, he could start spending that money. And he went up on the air really early in the spring. Uh, and inexplicably, the Graham campaign let him dominate the airwaves for several months before they really weighed in with any advertising to counter what Harrison was saying about himself. Um, and so for, for several months, especially right at the beginning of the pandemic, when people are kind of locked inside and not sure what to do, they were starting to get hit with Jamie Harrison ads that were talking about what a wonderful person he was and, and his personal story and what he wanted to do for the voters of South Carolina. And by the time Graham finally got up on the air and, and really started taking the campaign seriously – People already had a pretty strong impression of Jamie Harrison, and it's been really hard for the Graham campaign to undo that. Uh, the one way he's certainly that that Graham that is 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 trying to attack Jamie Harrison, of course, is by tying him to Washington, but specifically to Nancy Pelosi. So not making direct attacks that Jamie Harrison is a liberal, but if he is friends with Nancy Pelosi, then of course. He is going to pursue that agenda. Do you think that's working? It's hard to tell right now because Harrison's been pretty effective in in trying to position himself, especially on key issues. Um, you know, he came out this week and and suggested court packing might not be a good idea, uh, and so he's taken some mm. some very high profile positions that were much more to the center than the Democrats and and Pelosi have been espousing, and I think that that makes it a little bit harder to tie him to that group. Um, it certainly is is something that conservatives may believe readily, but I'm not sure that it's playing all that well with independents and, and some of those more disaffected Republicans that Harrison is hoping to pull in his direction. You know, Professor Vincent, if you had told me that Lindsey Graham lost a race, my assumption would have been, oh, so he lost a primary um, to a more conservative candidate, right? So for years, 
He was pilloried by conservatives for his positions on immigration. And obviously, his friendship with John McCain uh, meant that, you know, on, on many issues that traditional conservatives or Trump conservatives disliked, um, Lindsey Graham was, you know, on that side, right? He was on the opposite side exactly. from where a lot of Trump conservatives were. So is that what's going on, too, is that he has sort of alienated some traditional conservatives while now also alienating the more independent-minded voters who don't like what they saw from Kavanaugh and his newfound friendship with the president. That's one of those things we're going to all really be studying those exit polls to find out about that, um, because Graham's done an awful lot in the last four years to to regain the trust of those conservatives that were always suspicious of him before. Um, that that full-throated uh, support for Trump, uh, the absolutely passionate defense of Brett Kavanaugh, I think smoothed over a lot of the differences. Um, I've heard a lot more folks who, who used to pillory Graham as sort of a Republican in name only, who've, who are now defending him. So I'm not sure that may be mattering at the margins. And I think the one place that could potentially show up in the um, the election this time around is there is a third party constitutional candidate who's who's still on the ballot, even though he has now endorsed Graham. Um, and if you see that person getting many votes, that would strike me as those disaffected mm-hmm. conservatives who have never really trusted Graham to begin with. Um, but where I'm seeing more of the movement are in those those more um, mainstream Republicans who actually appreciated that Graham would occasionally work across the aisle, and now they feel like he's turned his back on that, and so they're they're wondering how how much they can trust what he says. Can you talk to us a little bit about the African American vote and uh, how you think uh, that uh, group of voters? Uh, is going to influence this election. Yeah, this is a group, they've traditionally voted Democratic in South Carolina, but the problem is we don't really have competitive races in general elections. And so a lot of times that turnout level is low in the general election. This year, they're enthused. They actually see a viable candidate um, he's speaking to the issues that they're concerned about, health care, the economy. Um, he understands them, and they are ready to go out and vote for Jamie Harrison. So I am expecting really high turnout among minority voters, particularly African-American voters in the state this time, because we've actually got a race. Um, and that's, that's true, actually, of Democrats across the state. They usually don't have right. much to look forward to in a general election. And what does this say about South Carolina, This the potential, again, when people have this image of what South Carolina is, only recently took the Confederate flag down um, off the state capitol, and yet there's the potential that it will be a state that sends two African Americans, one Democrat, one Republican to United States Senate, had a woman as governor who's Indian American. What kind of message do you think South Carolina is sending, if any, by that? I, you know, I'm a native South Carolinian, and we do like to surprise. Um, <laughs> it it is it's a strange state because that, those things sound very contradictory, um, and yet I think it speaks very much to the individual candidates that they've been able to break through the historical barriers to communicate to voters across the state in ways that that really speak to the issues those voters are concerned about. One other issue in the state of South Carolina, like so many other states, is 
absentee voting. And we know that we're going to have an early voting just began. Uh, I know this from my own mother who lives there and the challenges of figuring out, well, what are the rules? Because they seem to have changed. Um, between Yes. You, you need a witness signature. No, you don't. Yes, you do. So is there concern there that because the rules have changed and maybe people are not aware of that, that a lot of folks are going to vote there and find out that their votes were actually tossed out because they were invalid. I, I do think it's been a concern. Um, most of the voters I know who had already gotten their absentee ballots, even when the first ruling um, was that you would not need witness signatures, they knew that it was under appeal and they didn't trust that it would go you know, the same way. And so they went on and got signatures. I know that votes that were mailed in before that final decision was made um, will be accepted without signatures. But you're right, the confusion just adds one more um, potential hurdle for voters to, to jump through uh, and, and does create confusion about what's, what's acceptable or not. I think one of the responses to that is you're seeing an awful lot of in-person early voting. The lines in Charleston and Greenville have been long um, in the first few days of early voting. Uh, and I expect that that's going to continue. Professor Vincent, I, I thank you so much for coming in and, and talking us through this. And uh, hopefully we can talk a lot more about South Carolina politics in the future. It's fascinating. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Danielle Vincent is Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Furman University. President Donald Trump was elected four years ago after the most unconventional and divisive campaign in recent history. But four years later, in what feels like a million presidency-ending moments, he's in the White House fighting for a second term. This is a president who's been impeached, emboldened far-right groups, refused to release his tax returns, and attempted to use his status to influence the Department of Justice. It's safe to say that President Trump has bucked the norms and expectation that most presidents accept as part of the job. But it's not a job he'll have forever. Whether he leaves office in four months or four years, American institutions will have to grapple with what to do in his shadow. To better understand how President Trump has taken advantage of his office and how the presidency could be reformed to prevent similar abuse, I spoke with the authors of After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. Bob Bauer was Barack Obama's White House counsel, and Jack Goldsmith was George W. Bush's assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel. The thing that stands out the most to me, and it was a large impetus for us to write this book, is Trump's just utter indifference to the norms of Justice Department independence and the sensitivity to the idea that the president is not supposed to interfere in law enforcement actions, especially ones that implicate him. And this is such a big issue that we devoted a whole, and basically part two of the book is devoted to the various aspects of this. It's a very complicated problem when you have a president who's basically weighing in to say, prosecute my political enemies, I think that this investigation against me is corrupt, who's firing the FBI in, uh, director, who's trying to fire the special counsel. I mean, he just did a whole array of things to violate these norms and really to jeopardize the sort of appearance and reality of an even-handed rule of law. So I think, you know, there are a lot of reforms in the book and there are a lot of problems presented by Trump. But if I had to say that there was one thing that was really especially concerning, and this is evidence in the fact that we spent so much time on it in the book, I would say it's that. 
Yeah. Bob, what about you? We have a significant part of the book devoted to restoring the rule of law, both finding statutory controls that can be imposed on the president, but also reinvigorating norms through internal regulation. And I think it is an urgent task that uh, the next president after Trump is going to have to address. The Department of Justice reputation has been badly damaged. And I think confidence in the controls that people thought were in place or many assumed were in place, confidence in the norms has just dramatically deteriorated. So there are folks, some of whom are Trump supporters, others who just uh, maybe don't like the way that the media is portraying the president. They say, look, this guy, he says a lot of things, but really he's all bark. And you're, you, you all are kind of taking this too far because you don't like the fact that he's just not polite and he's not following the elite opinion. And um, you all even note in your book that, look, he's not been as aggressive, even though he speaks aggressively, as his predecessors in expanding unilateral presidential war powers or follow through on a lot of the things he said he was going to do, like throw his opponents into jail. So where has the norm busting that we talk about really tread into real challenges? The place where it's had the biggest impact, uh, I think, again, is on uh, the appearance and reality of whether the rule of law is being abided by in the country. And I would say that it's not just his bark. I mean, when he pressures the Justice Department to give his friends a break and then the Justice Department does that, that's not, Mm -hmm. for example, with um, Roger Stone and um, Michael Flynn, the efforts of and the Barr's investigation of the Trump investigation itself. This is more than just bark. It's actual action taken that it looks like the president is using the law enforcement arm of the government to um, to basically to serve his personal ends. But there are a whole bunch of other examples, and Bob maybe can talk about some others. But just for example, the pardon power. The pardon power is an example where Trump has actually exercised the pardon power in a very unusual way to serve his personal interests to a much greater extent, especially during this part of the presidency than any prior president. And there's a danger that Trump has presented that past presidents really haven't presented, that he will use this power in a way that will actually corrupt justice. So we actually have some what I think are imaginative proposals to try to get at the worst abuses of the pardon power. That's not bark, that's bite. And we can probably expect more of that after uh, the election. And I would add that there was a period of time when it was widely thought that Trump would do some barking, but the people below him, the people in the position to implement the orders would not follow. And there was some evidence of that, consider the tenure of Don McGahn as White House counsel and his resistance to Trump's efforts to get him to fire uh, Bob Mueller. However, as you can see, as time has gone by, Trump has done what one might have thought he would do. He's starting to clean the place out of the people who will resist and replace them with the people who will comply. And we see that most recently in what he's done uh, with the ODNI uh, and the relationship he clearly has that he's delighted with with John Radcliffe. Uh, He's, on the other hand, very unhappy now with Chris Ray and said that he was very disappointed in Ray because Ray is not pursuing the investigation of his political enemies that he had wanted. There were norms here about everything from giving to the public and to the media your tax returns, being upfront about your business interests. What sort of reforms do you all think are needed post-Trump presidency on issues like this? 
those reforms, I think, fall into two categories. Uh, the ones that should be easy to execute, although we do address the details, and I think details do matter. And one of our objectives in the book is to be pretty specific about the design of some of these reforms so that they'll work correctly and they'll strike the right balance. Uh, certainly one is mandatory disclosure of tax returns. And that includes within that proposal various methods that we recommend for enforcing that and also for additional information that we believe ought to be made available to the public. And that includes the audits of presidential tax returns that the Internal Revenue Service is currently required to perform of every president. So that's one broad category, the disclosure of tax returns. And the second is other ways in which presidential financial conflict of interest has to be addressed. Uh, Trump has made no bones about not wishing to both divest himself of his business interests, but also not to lose control of them. Um, so there are all sorts of evidence of his attempting, really for the first time in our history, certainly modern history that I'm aware of, to run concurrently a president and a vast business interest that pose significant conflicts of interest. And we have a range of reforms that we recommend to address presidential conflicts of interest uh, beyond uh, simply having the disclosure required of tax returns. Bob, I, I want to go to this feels similar to a point in recent memory, or maybe modern memory, modern history, which is the era after Watergate, where there were calls for reforms. And many of those, of course, did end up making it into law. And there was bipartisan consensus there. Is your expectation that should Joe Biden win, that we will see some of the things that you all lay out here? Or do you think we're to a place now we're so much more polarized than we were even back at that moment, that getting reforms through is just so much more challenging? On some of these issues, once Trump is off the scene, we think there is the basis, not on all of these issues, to be sure, there'll be certainly political divisions around some of these issues. But on other issues, there ought to be, and we think there's glimmers of, the basis for some bipartisan agreement. I, for one, just to take a simple one that we just discussed, don't think uh, that the tax return issue is one uh, that will elude partisan right. bipartisan agreement. Can I just add something to that, please? Sure, Jay. Yeah, of course. Uh, another thing worth emphasizing is about half the reforms in the book are ones that we believe the president and the attorney general can implement unilaterally, not only in laying down those rules, but also in the way that the next president and next attorney general comport themselves on this whole range of issues. So you need bipartisan support for uh, assuming that the Democrats don't control the Congress. You, you would might need bipartisan support and you would hope you would get it on many of these issues, which weren't controversial before Trump. How worried, Jack, I'll start with you, but how worried are you and how realistic do you think it is that this president is going to spend, if he loses, a lot of his efforts post-election trying to avoid leaving office? I have every confidence that Trump will try to do whatever he can to discombobulate the results of the election, especially if they don't look good for him. And so the first consideration is if, assuming that uh, Vice President Biden wins is how big is the, the victory. If the victory is very large and decisive and early, clear early on, that makes it more difficult for Trump to do these things. So this may seem naive, and I don't. I'm not suggesting that anyone should assume that what I'm going to say is true because I think you need to prepare for the worst with Trump. But I think if it's pretty clear 
that he lost and that whatever allegations of electoral shenanigans there are, it's pretty clear that they wouldn't have made a difference to the outcome of the election. I predict that Republicans would not – the senior Republicans in the, in the Congress and I think even in his administration would not support trying to, in effect, invalidate a legitimate transfer of authority in our democracy. That's my belief and it's my hope. Bob, what about you? What do you think is going to happen? I agree with Jack. I think that uh, he's not going to unilaterally decide – he cannot successfully unilaterally decide that he's not leaving office – that I don't think is going to happen. That is an example of bark. It's, of course, very damaging to have a president say that. But I think that uh, here, I think there are norms, and I think you can see them in expectations that are very live across, frankly, both parties. Frankly, in my, in my day job now, I, I see that across state and local levels, where for all of his shouting, election officials, Republicans and Democrats are going about trying to put an election on, and that's what they intend to do. If Trump were to lose re-election, what sort of legal actions could be taken against him? And uh, Jack, do you want to do you want to start there? You know, Bob and I had come to this book with different experiences in different administrations. Uh, Bob was the White House Counsel. For Barack Obama, I was an assistant attorney general in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel for President Bush. And so we came to this book about reforming the presidency, not necessarily agreeing on political things, but we reached remarkable consensus on everything in the book. And this is the one issue that we had some disagreement about. And I think it's a disagreement in emphasis because I think we both think the other's position has validity. My basic view is that it is – not good for the country and ultimately won't serve the rule of law to have a full-blown investigation of Trump for his alleged criminal actions while in office. I mean, there are already investigations going on in New York State and in the New York Federal uh, U.S. Attorney's Office for Trump's actions prior to entering office, and I think those should continue. I think it sets an extremely bad precedent for one administration to pour over the actions of the prior one for, for, for criminal actions. I think we're already in a downward cycle of tit, using criminal law for tit-for-tat investigating prior administrations. That's what the Republicans think that uh, the Obama administration did during the uh, 2016 campaign investigation. That's what the Democrats think that Barr is doing now with his Durham investigation of the investigators of the 2016 investigation, also through the lens of criminal law. I think it would be enormously disruptive and disruptive for the next administration in terms of what they're able to accomplish. And at the end of the day, it's not clear what crimes Trump has committed, and it's not at all clear that he could ever be convicted of anything. And so it seems to me the worst of all possible worlds is to have this continually divisive uh, action against the president that results in him not being convicted. It would be kind of like the same thing that happened in the impeachment where we tried this tool and it failed and some people think now it's not much of a tool. If Trump committed crimes, not prosecuting him after he leaves office, that, that does pose a cost of the rule of law. But my basic view is, and this is, this is not atypical when prosecutors think about these issues, that the costs of going forward are much greater and both to the next administration and to the country. And, and Bob, that's what I was going to point to, too, is we did have impeached. This president has been impeached. So which is supposed to be the way in which a president is held accountable during his time in office. But you're arguing that that isn't even enough. We have executive branch law that the president cannot be prosecuted while in office, can be investigated but not prosecuted. 
And we have a norm that suggests that in the interest of national unity, he shouldn't be prosecuted after he or she leaves office. It seems to me we can't have rule of law in this country if the president is protected by law while in office, protected by a norm out of office, and therefore is not accountable by law for any actions that he or she undertook in office. I think that's just an untenable position. I recognize all of the risks that Jack have identified, which is why, and I think here, as you know, in my part of the book, I note the problems with the Ford pardon of Nixon that I think just have to be addressed head on. There has to be transparency of process and articulated standards. This has to be rigorous and fair and nonpartisan. Again, much of this relates back to the importance of having restored confidence in the Attorney General, the Department of Justice, and an apolitical law enforcement process. But it cannot be that the President of the United States is presumptively out of the woods. And Jack is not saying that, by the way, as he pointed out, is sort of out of the woods at all times for whatever he or she has done. That simply, that simply to me, is so corrosive of any concept of the rule of law that we really cannot abide it. Well, Jack Goldsmith, Bob Bauer, thank you both so much for coming in and, and helping walk us through what we know is going to be a very complicated time post-presidency. Appreciate it. It's thank you pleasure. very much. Thank you. And here's one more thing from me. All the talk of Trump's plummet in the polls and the potential for a blue wave on Election Day, well, it's given me deja vu. It was almost exactly the same week, four years ago, when the Access Hollywood tape was supposed to be the end for Trump and his party. Even the most optimistic Republicans I spoke with then were preparing for a landslide loss for the GOP. Of course, that didn't happen. So doesn't this prove that Trump still has time to turn things around? With the all-important caveat that, yes, there's still plenty of time for things to happen, there is a lot different about now versus 2016 that makes it harder for Trump to get things back on track. Most important, he's the president, not the candidate. He can't put all the blame on someone else for the things that are going badly now. Biden also comes into these last three weeks more popular than Hillary Clinton was at this point. And of course, it wasn't just Access Hollywood that dominated press coverage in the final days of 2016, hacked Clinton campaign emails that were published by WikiLeaks, and of course, the last-minute decision by FBI Director James Comey to reopen investigation into Clinton's emails, well, that dominated media coverage in the final days, too. And I know the words message discipline and Trump don't normally fit together, but back in late October 2016, Trump was pretty disciplined. He allowed Clinton's shortcomings to dominate the media narrative. Today, he's unwilling to cede the spotlight, even when it would help him. This ensures that voters are going to see more and more of Trump, and more important, more of what so many say they are exhausted by, his slashing and bashing and undisciplined style. Plus, as COVID cases continue to rise across the country, try as he may to change the topic, Trump can't drown out a pandemic. That's all for us today. Quick shout out to the crew. Our directors and sound designers are Vince Fairchild and Jay Cowett. Our board operator is Debbie Daughtry. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. And our politics producers are Amber Hall and Patricia Jacob. Call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Mm-hmm.